Well, if you would turn in your Bible to Philippians chapter number 2. Excuse me, that's where we'll be today as we uh, begin to think about this season of Advent. And, of course, uh, the word Advent means appearance or coming. And so this is the uh, first Advent. And as followers of Christ, we look forward to his second Advent, his return for us as people and uh, I'm going to preach today from the International Standard Version. This is my paperback copy that was, I, I got this when I graduated from college. I didn't go to uh, get theological training until I was about 30 years old. One of the things they gave me at graduation was a copy of the International Standard Version of the Bible. And it didn't catch on as a really widely popular trans, translation. But I like it because it, it uh, acknowledges that sometimes in scripture, uh, what the writer was giving us was poetry, or what he was giving us was a hymn. And in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, what you find out is that the writer was giving you a hymn to be sung. They sang this just like some of the psalms were set to music and were used as part of their worship. And so English translations of the Bible came to us from Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, uh, and so all of our English translations are a reflection of some of the uh, group of people who were gifted to understand language and brought to us an incredible gift that, that is the Bible in your language. So I'm not hung up on particular translations. That's one thing I'm trying to say. Typically, I preach from the New King James Version of the Bible. But today, I think you'll enjoy the way the Scripture is rendered in the International Standard Version. So here's how it goes. It says there in chapter 2, verse 5, Have the same attitude among yourselves that was also in Christ Jesus. In God's own form existed he. And shared with God equality, deemed nothing needed grasping. Instead, poured out in emptiness a servant's form he did possess, a mortal man becoming. In human form he chose to be and lived in all humility, death on a cross obeying. Now lifted up by God to heaven, a name above all others given, this matchless name, possessing. And so when Jesus' name is called, the knees of everyone will fall wherever they are residing. Then every tongue in one accord will say that Jesus Christ is Lord while God the Father praising. Father, thank you for the Bible and thank you for the fact that you've given us this way to know and worship you. And I pray that you'll speak to us from this word of truth. Now we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So as we begin this Advent season, we light the hope candle in anticipation. Of course, for us, it's uh, hope realized because we look back on events that have happened already. But a lot of times people today wonder, where can we find hope? Where, what's its location? So we march out to the outlet mall, you know, and stuff like that to try to find something tangible uh, for hope or relationships uh, that might sustain us, and often what we find is that the those things that we're looking for hope in only deliver disappointment. That was all that I knew when I finally came to faith in Christ as a 24-year-old, was trying to find hope in things that never delivered, relationships that didn't deliver, purchases that didn't deliver, only for a little while. 
And finally, I found the location of hope was in a person. Sometimes people's journey for hope ends up in addiction. You know, we, we uh, extend ourselves out onto territory hoping for something that brings fulfillment. But what we found instead was that we were stuck and didn't know how to get out of the, the uh, place that we were stuck. And so sometimes we look everywhere but up. I think that's what people do. You know, I drive through my neighborhood and I see people with Christmas decorations who don't understand the location of hope. They look into, you know, like the... the transitional the temporary kind of things that we experience and but there's not hope in in uh that in that stuff and so is hope what is it to begin with is it an emotion that a person experiences is hope an an emotion i think we got a good definition of it in the video that we saw earlier but when we think about what what hope really means it uh in Christmas, in this season, sometimes for people, it's not it's not an emotion or it's not something that's encouraging to them because they experience this season in terms of loss or loneliness and it they feel isolated. And many people, one thing I was reading this past week was talking about um, surveys that they that where people have had conversations about what. It's like if you already are dealing with mental illness or if you're already dealing with stress, the holidays tend to increase that for people. And so if we learn to understand hope differently, what it does for us is gives us something transcendent and permanent uh, as a way of experiencing what the Bible would mean when it talks about hope. We see it in a person. And then we get foundational help in every season. Not just during the Christmas season, but in every season of our lives. And so this passage for us gives us three movements that we can see uh, how God would have you understand hope. What it would mean you know, for us to have hope in the way that God means it. So in these movements, the first one we see in this passage is the coming of Christ. The, the hymn, the poem that the early church would have sung about Jesus and that was cited in the letter here to the uh, church at Philippi there's this coming of Christ and so it says there in, uh, that we're to have the same mind that Christ had so he's writing to a congregation of people and he's outlining a problem that they had and that was uh, reflected as a lack of unity the people weren't uh, in, in sync and so For us, the instruction we receive, first of all, before we even get to the idea of who Jesus is and what he did, it's like you are to have this mind in you, the same one that Christ had. And when we think about what that uh, mind was, it was that he accepted his identity as a servant. And so hope comes to us in a way that's different than we usually think because most people, when they think about their identity and the meaning of their life, it, it's not in the idea of being a servant. It's the uh, self, uh, self-focused life. It's pursuing things that put us as the, at the center and receiving. But the Bible says, no, if we want to experience hope, the way that we begin to experience, first of all, is exploring what's my identity, who am I, who does God say I am. And, of course, we, re- we realize that in knowing who Christ is and what he came to do in his coming. In the first advent, 
What was it that he came to do? Well, the Bible says that he came to assume the identity of a servant. So it says, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ. A while back we went through 1 Corinthians in the Bible and there it says about people who follow Jesus and are believers, but we have the mind of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 2.16. So the Bible says that when we receive Christ, one of the things that we receive is the enabling of his mind. He comes to live in us, so we're able to be empowered to live a different kind of life and it affects our thinking. At least we have the, uh, the capacity because of his indwelling presence, if we really know him, to think and adjust to life in a different way and to behave as a servant. He modeled that for us in his coming. The scripture, you know, as we're going to see, explains to us that Jesus didn't come to exist when he came to earth. He had always existed. He he existed in the form of God, but he chose to be a servant. The Bible says you are to have this mind in you that Christ had, that is that he identified in the role of a, of a servant. I love this uh, scripture in 2 Corinthians 5.15. It says, and Christ died for all. He did die for all of us. He died so we would no longer live for ourselves, but for the one who died and was raised to life for us. He died so we no longer would live for ourselves, but for the one who died and was raised to life for us. I heard Jonathan quote this uh, person, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, this very same quote. He said, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. We think about what's my identity? What does God say is true about me when I come to faith in Christ? Well, the scripture says when Jesus calls a person, he calls you to come and die. If anyone wants to follow after me, he says, let him take up his cross and follow after me. And the cross was an instrument of death. And so the Bible is saying that God calls us to die to our, our self-will and to die as viewing ourselves as the center of the universe and instead to become uh, servants. So to, uh, what, what did Jesus come to do? What's the Advent about? Why do we like candles? Why do we talk about hope? Well, in Scripture, the, his first Advent was about redemption. It was about reclaiming that which was lost. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Well, what was lost in Scripture? Innocence, purity, connection. You know, the Bible says that God made people to be in a relationship with himself, and that relationship was severed in the very first people that ever uh, were placed on this earth. And by one man, the scripture says, sin passed to all people and that all have sinned. And, and so by sin, death, that's the relationship, the fellowship that people enjoyed with God was severed. It was cut off. And when Jesus came here, he came to redeem. He came to reclaim and to restore the relationship that God intended from the beginning. But not only that, you know, we think, well, I'm saved if you are, I have this peace, I have this hope in myself that Christ has made my life new and different. 
But he also intended to launch into the world a movement of servants who understood the hope in the gospel. So we think about when the scripture says this thing in verse 5 to us, let this mind be in you. You think the way that Jesus thinks. Well, he accepted the identity of, of, of a servant. And he said, I came into the world to redeem people and to launch into the world a movement of people whose identity is just like that. We serve. We're told to let this mind be in us. That's uh, because it's unnatural, right? It's not our default setting. That we, We're told, instructed, commanded to let this mind be in us because it's not natural for us to set aside our rights, uh, especially people in the West you know, where we are in America, rights are primary. And it's really, a lot of times that's what people build their identity around, is their rights. But the Bible says no, and our understanding of who Jesus is, it's the setting aside of rights to put ourselves in the position of serving others. And so, you know, again, what we were hearing in our announcements about needs in congregations is that, Part of what it means to follow Christ is to accept that he's got a purpose for my life that I, I um, embrace, I live out. It becomes for me compelling and so I accept that Christ doesn't call me just to be a consumer or somebody that sits and listens and, but also to take on a mission that is transformational in the world. And so he uses us, he launches through us a a group of people who, a movement, really, is what you saw in the first century, of people who knew that their life was to be given away, not to be just kept selfishly for themselves. But in what we see in Jesus, too, is that he claimed to be the eternal God. So the apostles echo that. You see that in this hymn. In his incarnation, Jesus is relinquishing his rights, He's not relinquishing his personality. He didn't stop being God when he came to earth. He continued to be God, but the Bible says he did empty himself of, sometimes people say, his prerogatives. He poured out his life. Uh, He made himself nothing. That's the idea. He decided, I will make myself an an unknown human. And so when he comes and eventually claims to be God, it causes a lot of difficulty in his life leading to execution. But the, the uh, idea of who Jesus was is that he always had been God. In the beginning was the word. Jesus always was there. That particular beginning means time without uh, any beginning. At the very first, when there was nothing, God himself was there and Jesus was too. That's what it's saying to us. And the apostles repeat that. In his incarnation, he relinquishes his rights. Christmas music's hard to do. It's like there's a lot of chord changes, right, Cody? Especially when you do the uh, older hymns. It's like it's very difficult. But it's worth it because of what we see in terms of theology. I love this the hymn that says, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail incarnate deity that's rich veiled in flesh that's what this passage is saying that jesus did he became a human he veiled himself in flesh he uh, accepted an identity that that's the incarnation 
His station is unassailable. That's why I like how this translation of the Bible says, deemed nothing needed grasping. When it talks about uh, who Jesus was, in God's own form existed he and shared with God equality, deemed nothing needed grasping. In other words, Jesus didn't think, well, if I, if I come to earth on this mission, if I accept the, uh, the identity of being born into a human family, what will happen to my identity as God? Is that something that I've forsaken? That never entered his mind. He deemed nothing needed grasping. He could release his station and humble himself without affecting his core essence because he was God. And that's what he did. He deemed it uh, that it didn't need to be grasped. He released it. He opened his hand and came here to take on himself this identity as a human. And as we've sung and said, so that he could die. That was the reason. That's why there's always a little bit of a pall over our celebration of Christmas. is because we recognize this baby that is born is born to march toward a cross. To embrace death. That's the whole entire reason of his coming here, to demonstrate for us God's love for us, but ultimately to die in our place. And so he releases his station. He makes himself nothing, the scripture says. And that's, to me, as I I think about it, the miracle of Christmas. We think, what's the miracle of Christmas? It is the fact that God would do that, that God did do that that God came here, that he was willing to empty himself and be born into this world in the way that he he does. And so I think about how we say keep Christ in Christmas, right? You see that on bumper stickers sometimes. Keep Christ in Christmas. Well, it's a good thought because when we make Christmas primarily about nostalgia, when we make Christmas primarily about tradition, we cheapen it. Because what it's really about, Linus said it the best, right? When Linus steps into the spotlight, and Charlie Brown's like, isn't there anybody that really knows what Christmas is all about? And uh, Linus steps into the spotlight and quotes the Gospel of Luke and tells us this is what Christmas is all about. And I like the fun things. I put up uh, in short pants this week our Christmas tree you know that that you're in the south when you're sweating while you're putting up your Christmas tree but like I put up our Christmas decorations and I love those traditions we've got I'm, I, as I take out the ornaments they're full of memories right I look at some of them I'm like I bet you my parents my mom was alive when this ornament in fact it probably was an ornament that they had in their home because we've got a few like that or I asked Frankie, I know you remember where this came from, and she can give me its history, but I like those traditions. I enjoy it. I enjoy the, the things that we do that are attendant to incarnation, but also never want to forget what this is really about. It's why Advent, you know, why do you do that? Why do you do the same thing year after year after year? Because it grounds us in the permanence of what God was doing when he came here. So when we make other things primary, we cheapen that, I think. 
Jesus made himself nothing, at least in the eyes of the powerful people of his day, they considered him nothing. When he stood before Pontius Pilate, Pilate considered him nothing. When he had to defend himself or was on trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin and the high priest, they considered him nothing. So he makes himself nothing. Takes, he he uh, uh, has no reputation, no, no importance in the eyes of powerful people of his day. He, he opened himself to mortality. He was born into this world to die. He opened himself up to mortality. He chose to become a doulos. That's the Greek word, servant. He became human. That's the inception of hope. We think about what hope is. He accepted the limitations of his earthly experience to open the limitless riches of God to us. That's beautiful. He accepted the limits of his earthly experience to open the limitless riches of God to us. So he says, I will live to be 33 or whatever it was approximately. I'll accept that human life with its limits so that I can open up for you the limitless riches of God. I can give you everything that God intends. That's incarnation. That's advent. It's what Jesus did. He became an embryo. If you want your mind blown, just think about that a little bit. That God became an embryo. That he made himself alive in the body of a virgin. He became a child in a poor Middle Eastern family. The oldest of all his siblings. And he let himself be born into a family where his siblings were skeptical of his identity. And God chose to do that. And Jesus did that. He accepted derision because he was derided. He took the hatred and the insults of the opponents of uh, his life and his purpose in the days of his flesh, as the book of Hebrews puts it. He accepted those insults and he accepted the doubt and the unbelief. But conversely, he had friends. He ate food in their homes. He worked with his hands as a carpenter. I guess he got splinters like other carpenters did. He went to synagogue with his family. So they... You know, as a group, went to worship together. We th- Jesus did that, which is weird to think about. But ultimately, Jesus became human to accomplish our rescue. But in this beautiful hymn that was given to the church as a way of understanding the gospel, the first movement we see in this advent of hope is his coming. But secondly, in this, the second movement in this beautiful hymn is the cross of Christ verse 8 it says and li- he lived in all humility in human form he chose to be and lived in all humility death on a cross obeying so Advent is about this sacrifice of Christ his humility the, the concept outruns our logic that God could be humble isn't that a, a uh, idea that we're like, no, if, I, if a human were writing a story of God, he would not include the idea of a humble God, I don't think. 
But that's what God did. He humbled himself. Dane Ortland says that's how he became accessible. He's accessible. Aren't you glad God's accessible to us? That we can come to him and be accepted. His humility is his willing advocacy. This is from uh, Dane Ortland. He says, he sides with you against your sin, not against you because of your sin. He sides with you against your sin, not against you because of your sin. That's the kind of God that he is. That he sided with you against your sin. He took our sin and our punishment, not against us because of our sin. So he takes our wrath. He opens the way for us to be forgiven. He became obedient unto death. And obedience is not a word that we typically ascribe to God either. Think about that. God became obedient. He became humble. He became obedient. And the scripture says that in uh, Jesus' obedience, he learned uh, obedience through the things that he suffered. His suffering was what was, this is new territory for God. New territory. Where God enters into the plight of people and we think about passion, suffering. God became willing to suffer so that he could reclaim lost humanity. And that's his obedience that it's talking about here. Humble obedience that led him to allow himself to be pierced through the wrist and feed and allowed him to be beaten and allowed him to have a crown of thorns pressed upon his head and allowed him to be pierced in the side by a spear and spat upon and his beard pulled out and all the things that the scripture describes in his suffering. He did all of those things in humble obedience to accomplish our salvation. The story of Advent is of God's startling behavior. It's startling. God did that. God allowed these things to happen to him so that he could reconcile his wandering, straying creation. That's the contrast. God in humble obedience, us in rebellion, straying, basically uh, reject, rejecting him. But he comes to us to win us back. In his humble obedience, God chose death on a cross so that in that way he could offer forgiveness without compromising his justice. God didn't neglect justice. He didn't say, okay, now suddenly justice is of no importance. No, he became the object of his own wrath. He let himself be punished in our place so that justice was completely satisfied so forgiveness could be freely offered. That's the idea of grace. That by grace we're saved through faith and it's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of work, so that nobody can boast. In the same passage that we heard read in the introduction today from Titus where he says it's not not of works of righteousness that we've done but according to his mercy that he saves us through the washing of regeneration renewing of the Holy, Holy Spirit so God offers forgiveness but not, not by compromising his own justice and his resurrection affirms its effectiveness of what the cross was all about his justification of humans in the sacrifice of himself so the third movement in this passage that we see we could say is the crowning or coronation of Christ either would be appropriate because 
in this movement, we see the effectiveness of the cross, and we see how people must respond to what Christ has done and, and will respond. His hum, humiliation is temporary. His willingly obscure entry to earth is followed by open exaltation and unrivaled uh, prominence. So at that time, he accepts obscurity. At that time, he willingly becomes a servant and a nobody in the eyes of a lot of people. But he's not always going to be a nobody, is he, according to what the Scripture says? No, I mean, there's coming a time when he's going to be the biggest somebody to everybody so he's still a nobody to a lot of people but the bible says there is coming a day when he will be the only somebody to everybody that every person is going to have to acknowledge who he is he is exalted to the highest place and though people hid as it were his, their faces from him that's what the writer in john and really isaiah 53 says the same thing We hid, as it were, our faces from... There's coming a day when nobody will be able to hide from him. In fact, if you read Revelation, it says they'll cry out to the rocks and the mountains. And they'll say, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's who's come. And, And so from the wealthiest and most influential... I don't know, we think about people like that today. Elon Musk, who for the longest time I thought that was a men's fragrance... But now, no, I know that he is uh, king of the Twitterverse. But we think about influence uh, that people hold today and, and how we esteem people like that that are wealthy in our world, that have uh, as much money as countries, some of them. And, and we think about those people and the, their, the, the wealth and the influence and the doors that, that opens and the places it takes and that they could buy private airplanes from Gulfstream and fly around the world in them and stuff like that. And the Bible says that some of those somebodies are going to one day be nobodies. Just because they didn't respond to this somebody, the one who's coming, who every knee will bow before and every tongue will confess before him that he is Lord of all. So whether they're wealthy, influential, poor, and unknown, everybody's going to encounter Jesus. I was listening to a song this past week. I like that some of you may remember a group called the Imperials. There was a guy named Russ Taft that sang in the Imperials. He has a song that says somebody's coming. He says he don't need your vote. He's going to rattle your cage and rock your boat. That's, I was listening to that song loud in my office and singing along this past week. Somebody's coming. And that's what the scripture says here, that this, there's coming a crowning of this king. Jesus came, lived, died, and rose again to make willing worshipers of wretched, alienated, lost sinners. That's what he came to do. And his kindness is uh, for us a way that we're led to repentance. That's what God intends. His kindness leads us to repentance. And God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's his objective for everybody, is that everyone in repentance is turning away from our uh, self-focused, rejecting of God life to a life that embraces and accepts him and opens itself up to God as he is. And so his kindness is intended to lead you and I to repentance, and his love is on display 
in Advent and Calvary, the fact that he came here. Even though his supreme purpose is that every single person would acknowledge Jesus as Lord, to turn away from our sin and to receive him as the forgiveness of our own sin and as our own Savior and our Master, we know that not everyone will do that. But just as no one is excluded from the possibility of responding to God's grace, even so no one is excluded from the responsibility of responding to God's grace. No one is excluded from the possibility of responding to God's grace, but no one is excluded from the responsibility of responding to his grace. In other words, you must respond yourself. Your grandmother can't be a Christian for you. And it doesn't matter that you have a legacy of faith in your family. It gets really personal because the Bible says you too must acknowledge Jesus as Lord yourself. Nobody else can do that for you. You alone can respond to Jesus as Lord and and must because one day, willingly, that's the ideal, right? That one day we're going to encounter Jesus whether it's when you die or whether he returns, we're going to encounter Jesus. And we will, every one of us, say, Jesus is Lord. It may be grudgingly, as he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Or hopefully, it will be joyfully, as we see face to face the one who took our place and died in our, in our place and, came and rose from the dead for us. But just as there will be joy at Christ appearing, at his second advent, there will be weeping and despair, gnashing of teeth, the Bible says. Just as there will be fulfillment and reward of faithful belief, there will be an awful awakening of reality understood and registered too late. A writer named Hobbes called hell. He said, hell is truth seen too late. Truth seen too late. Jesus is going to have a second advent into this world. I love the video that we saw today and how it explains what hope is because sometimes we we might not feel um, all that hopeful based on our circumstances, but that, that the idea in the Bible is that hope isn't based on circumstances. It's based on history. It's based on reality of events that have occurred because of what God was willing to do. Us hope is anticipating a future that's better than the present, and Christ has already made that possible. So that in our tension-filled waiting, there is a sure and fundamental cause for the expectation of a favorable outcome. So, in other words, your circumstances may not currently be ideal; they may not be everything you hope for. But the Bible says, even in this tension-filled world, we saw how with the prophets in the Old Testament, a lot of times they were in the middle of war, disaster, exile. It wasn't pretty and it wasn't perfect, but God's promise was reliable to them. And that same promise has been fulfilled already for us. And so the grace of God in Christ creates a favorable expectation. We aren't starry-eyed optimists because our hope is rooted in a person and his saving actions like people talk about. You believe in that pie in the sky by and by. No, we believe that God has done things that have tilted the advantage and changed the scenario for every human that will just say yes to Jesus. 
So it's a future that's favorable based on past events that have occurred. It's dependent on his character and his uh, predictively redemptive behavior. It's not rooted in you and your ability, thank God. I am thankful every day that salvation is not rooted in me and my ability, my performance, because I'm uneven. And some days I may feel like I'm not to have the part, but not every day. And so I'm grateful that it's not dependent on that. It's dependent on Jesus and his finished work. That when he died on the cross, God said, it is finished. It's not a do religion like people say. It's a done religion. He did it already. It's done. And he accomplished it. So he's accessible. And he can make us whole as he understands wholeness. To give us back our the, the purity that God is able to see us as pure because Jesus is powerful. And he already uh, took away the, the debt of sin. But we must respond to his gift. A gift has to be received with open hands. We have to say yes. So at some point in every person's spiritual journey, we reach a point where we say, okay, I realize that my sin has alienated me from you. I realize that you already did for me everything that needs to be done for me to experience forgiveness and to become a new creation. I, and I say yes now. I say yes to you. And so maybe today that's what Advent is for you. It's an entry into the life that God already has made possible. We wait for his return, and based on his first Advent, there is every cause to understand our hope as a confident expectation which is how I see it. We're going to have a time of commitment now. And as we sing together, it may be that there's a need you have to respond. I would love to pray with you. Perhaps today as you've listened, you need to pray to receive Christ into your life. And if so, I would love to pray with you during this invitation time. As we sing, maybe there's another need that you have to come for prayer. And uh, this is a time of commitment, invitation time. And so would you stand with me and we're going to sing and uh, come as God leads.